Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the strategy to capitalize on the case the January 6th committee is making that makes it abundantly clear Trump led the insurrection against the United States government, and therefore under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, he should be disqualified from holding federal office since he participated in an insurrection against the United States. Joining us is Alan Morrison, Associate Dean for Public Interest and Public Service and a Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School, where he teaches civil procedure and constitutional law. He has argued 20 cases in the United States Supreme Court and previously worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with Ralph Nader in 1972 and directed for over 25 years. We will discuss his op-ed at The Hill, Democrats should use 14th Amendment insurrection clause to keep Trump off the ballot in 2024, and how by suing Trump now, the Democrats could preempt Trump's time and place in choosing his announcement to run in 2024 and force discovery that would compel Trump to have to answer questions in a deposition or plead the fifth. Then, with 80 Democrats in the House and 18 in the Senate calling on President Biden to declare a public health emergency on abortion, we will speak with Rachel Reboucher, the Interim Dean and Professor of Law at Temple University Beasley School of Law, a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law. She is an author of Governance, Feminism, and Introduction, and editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law Options Rewritten, and she is the co-author of an article at The Atlantic, The Harshest Abortion Restrictions Are Yet to Come, which we will discuss. Then finally, we will look into the enormous sums of money groups aligned with APAC, the Israel lobby, are pouring into Democratic primary races in Maryland and Michigan without the transparency that they are only concerned about Israel, not the domestic issues raised in the campaign ads. Joining us is Dove Waxman, Professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and books, including Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what everyone needs to know. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Alan Morrison, Associate Dean for Public Interest and Public Service and a Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School, where he teaches civil procedure and constitutional law. He has argued 20 cases in the United States Supreme Court and previously worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with Ralph Nader in 1972 and directed for over 25 years. He has an op-ed at The Hill Democrats should use 14th Amendment insurrection clause to keep Trump off the ballot in 2024. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Morrison. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And former President Trump has already indicated that he's indeed going to run for president in 2024. It's just a matter of when he makes the announcement. There have been some suggestions he will do so in September, and but he even acknowledged that it... Uh, it may affect the midterms one way or the other. So your article at The Hill suggests that this should be done right away by the Democrats, right? Because it would force Trump to have to answer to whether or not he's running, uh, not at a time of his choosing, but he'd have to uh, literally answer a lawsuit. Yes, and also, of course, uh, you don't want to be in the situation where you have a lawsuit going on and it doesn't get resolved until right before the election. Uh, that would be a terrible thing for everybody. Uh, 
So uh, I think the Democrats would be interested in doing it, and I suspect that some Republicans might be interested in doing it uh, to clear the clear the air or clear the field for them. And this is uh, in lieu of the the fact that the Justice Department has essentially been sitting on its hands while the House Select Committee has developed a very strong uh, and compelling case against Trump. But the irony has always been that the Department of Justice has enormous resources compared to the House. They also have the ability to enforce subpoenas and not have to be stiffed by Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon. So given that... Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree that the, that the Justice Department has been sitting on their hands. Um, after all, they have some 400 convictions already and a three or 400 more cases that they've been dealing with. Right, and but they're the they low-level guys, aren't they, Alan? They're not the well, ones that planned and plotted. True. That's true. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the game is not over yet. And uh, Merrick Garland's a very capable lawyer, and uh, I think that he's getting uh, a lot of good information that he be, he'll be able to use in deciding whether to indict uh, former President Trump. So let's talk about, though, your suggestion here that I guess the Democratic Party should sue Trump right away under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies a person from being president who, while holding a federal office, participated in an insurrection against the United States. And that's, of course, a case that is being, I think, developed in a very compelling way by the House Select Committee. So... Are, are you aware that there are that, that there are two other cases going on now about this insurrection clause, uh, one involving Marjorie Taylor Greene and the other involving a, a representative from from North Carolina whose name now escapes me. Right. Uh, they they are they are being challenged to, uh, on the same grounds that, cha- that Trump would be challenged, uh, but they're doing it in a state co- in a state court, and it seems to me that that's probably not. Uh, it's a little questionable whether they can do that in the state court or, or not, but. Uh, Surely going after uh, p- former President Trump in the federal court is entirely appropriate. And uh, uh, th- after all, where else would it be uh, appropriate to uh, to get the court to decide this question? Yeah, I was going to bring up those two cases of Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in Atlanta and uh, the North Carolina case, both of which have been reported as victories for Marjorie Taylor Greene based upon the first hearing. So w- what leads you to think that the state court is still happening, the, the suit? Well, the, the question in both of those cases is whether the states can uh, reach a, a conclusion as to who whether they violated the 14th Amendment. Uh, the question in our case, in the Democrats' case, would be whether the federal courts can decide that question. And uh, I think that's a very different issue. Uh, and moreover, the, the clause that they rely on in that case, the, that is the, the current representatives, is the part of the Constitution that says that the House shall be a judge of its own members. And, of course, that doesn't apply to former President Trump. And so that's the principal argument in that case as to why the states can't do it. Uh, but I, I only cite those cases in our discussion here to indicate that this the issue about whether participation in insurrection uh, is, is grounds for denying someone a federal office is very much alive in the court system today. And again, I'm speaking with Alan Morrison, Associate Dean for Public Interest and Public Service and a Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School, where he teaches civil procedure and constitutional law. He has argued 20 cases in the United States Supreme Court and previously worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with Ralph Nader in 1972 and directed for over 25 years. And he has an op-ed at The Hill, Democrats should use 14th Amendment insurrection clause to keep Trump off the ballot in 2024. So I mentioned earlier, Alan Morrison, that the benefit of suing Trump right away under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would be that it would at least preempt his ability to, to choose a time and a place of his announcing that he was running. Uh, but furthermore, the president would have to respond to discovery, right? You write, Correct. Including being subjected to a deposition in which he would have to answer questions under oath. Unlike the situation in the select committee, he would have no arguable claim of presidential privilege. So He could, he could claim the Fifth Amendment, of course. Which is what uh, uh, General Flynn did right, in his deposition. Y- yes, uh, but General Flynn is not running for president of the United States, 
And and General Flynn never said, as President Trump said, uh, the only people who claim the Fifth Amendment are people who are guilty, uh, which would be a rather embarrassing thing for him to have to respond to. So on the timeline that you're suggesting then, Alan Morrison, when could we have discovery and see these depositions of Trump being forced to, under oath to answer questions, which he's never been. And he's, I mean, he's done a lot of depositions because essentially his, his business career preceding his political career was replete with lawsuits and criminal charges. Well, it would depend, of course, on what, how soon the case got filed uh, and how, how aggressive the judge was in, in, in giving the plaintiffs what they wanted. It reminds me of kind of the Watergate cases that, that went on in the early 1970s um, uh, when they moved quite quickly. And so, you know, if, if the case were filed soon, the, the Trump would make motions and those motions would be decided uh, by, you know, in, in the next couple of months. And perhaps before the end of the year or early next year, he would have to stand for a deposition. Uh, that strikes me as being a reasonable schedule. So... Do you have any feedback from the Hill article? Is, uh... Well, Huffington Post, of course, uh, re- repeated it, and, and other other. I've gotten uh, a number of of emails, uh, a number of favorable, and a number asking me what my possible credentials were to ask uh, suggest such an outrageous lawsuit. But that that goes with the territory. Well, this impediment seems to be, and and of course. This has been what those who have accused Merrick Garland of sitting on his hands, which is what you were able to refute a little while ago, Alan. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. is that Office of Legal Counsel decision that you can't uh, indict a sitting president still haunting us in any way? Because one of the theories about Trump announcing early that he's running for president was that, that maybe he thinks that might give him some cover under that OLC decision as a candidate. No, is it necessary, is it? Uh, I, I don't think the OLC decision would, would apply to him as a candidate. I think what he may be thinking of is that, that the uh, incumbent president would not allow his attorney general to indict Trump if Trump was actually a candidate because it would look too political. Well, uh, Trump's going to say it's political no matter what anybody says. So I don't think that that the uh, the fact that he has announced for president uh, – will will change that at all in, in terms of of Garland's analysis um, and of course you know he announces but he he he's announced lots of things that didn't happen he announced that the Mexicans were going to build the wall he announced that we're going to have an infrastructure program he announced he was going to replace uh the uh, affordable care act none of which happened so uh, i i guess we shouldn't uh, put too much stock in in what he says uh but of course uh, that'll be a matter to be seen so who could take up your suggestion then? I mean, what? Well, I suppose if President, in theory, President Biden could do it because he announces he's a candidate and, and he wants it. I suppose that the, Dem- the Democratic Party, on behalf of all potential candidates, they, would, they wouldn't have to say, they would say, we will have a candidate and we don't think he should, he's allowed to run and we're entitled to know that. I think that the Republicans, Republicans who, any Republican, for Governor DeSantis, uh, if if he announced that he was going to run and he could bring a lawsuit saying that uh, he should get this uh, over with before the primary start, Liz Cheney, if she wanted to run or just wanted to get him out of the out of the picture. Uh, there are lots of people who could bring this lawsuit. So obviously it would be too much to, to expect Biden to do yes, this. Yes, I don't I, I would. I don't think his advisors would have him do this if they right. wanted to have it happen. The Democratic uh, uh, National Committee could, could bring it on behalf of all of their candidates. Um, that's a kind. That's a common thing. Associations bring it on behalf of their members, and the DNC could bring it on behalf of all of their potential candidates for president. I don't think anybody would suggest that the Democratic Party is not going to have a candidate for president next year in, in, in 2024. Excuse me. So, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> well, we'll why see. isn't this not happening? For God's sake. I don't know. I mean, I'm. Look, I made a suggestion over a year ago that the Department of Justice ought to bring a civil case against Trump for causing all the damage to the property at the Capitol and to recover all the millions of dollars that were spent to bring up all the reservists and have them be security for the inauguration and for weeks after that. But that hasn't happened either. So, you know, 
who knows? Uh, maybe this one will catch on. Well, Alan Morrison, I thank you very much for joining us here You're today. You're quite welcome. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Alan Morrison, who's Associate Dean for Public Interests and Public Service and a professor of law at George Washington University Law School, where he teaches civil procedure and constitutional law. He has argued 20 cases in the United States Supreme Court and previously worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with Ralph Nader in 1972 and directed for over 25 years. And he has an op-ed at The Hill, Democrats should use 14th Amendment insurrection clause to keep Trump off the ballot in 2024. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking into how the harshest abortion restrictions are yet to come with 80 Democrats in the House and 18 in the Senate calling on President Biden to declare a public health emergency on abortion. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rachel Rabouche, who is an interim dean and a professor of law at Temple University Beasley School of Law, a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law. She is an author of Governance Feminism, an introduction and editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law Opinions Rewritten, and the co-author of an article at The Atlantic, The Harshest Abortion Restrictions Are Yet to Come. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rachel Rabouche. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we've all heard of this horrible incident in Indiana where a doctor got a referral from a doctor in Ohio where they've had a trigger law banning abortions without exceptions. And a 10-year-old girl was raped. She was what, three, six weeks, uh, I believe, at six weeks. And... They've actually caught and arrested the rapist who actually raped her twice, and he's a 27-year-old undocumented Mexican who somehow or other the Republicans didn't focus on him at all. The attorney general in the state of Indiana has made outrageous statements condemning the doctor, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, and prior to this, Caitlin Bernard had been alerted by the FBI that there had been kidnapping threats made against her daughter and she had to stop driving uh, from Indianapolis to a clinic in South Bend as a result of that. And these, she had been outed by this extreme anti-abortion group called Right to Life Michiana, which was supported by the former, uh, the now justice on the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, who signed a two-page advertisement uh, published by the group in 2006. So what's the latest on Dr. Caitlin Bernard's demand to Todd Rakita, the Republican Indiana Attorney General, who essentially had defamed her on Fox television? What's the latest of this cease and desist letter? Is there a lawsuit involved here? I don't I don't know if there's a lawsuit involved. Typically a letter it you know, precedes a lawsuit. It's just a warning that, you know, your some of your rights may be threatened by the conduct of another. And I think that the basis of the letter uh, and what I think has been now widely understood to be true about the situation is that the attorney general made accusations, but um, an investigation, from what I understand, has uh, has revealed no wrongdoing on the part of the physician. Uh, she followed the letter of the law scrupulously. She reported to the right authorities, um, you know, that there was a, a, a minor who she had suspected to, to be abused. Um, she did that, uh, you know, promptly. Uh, you're required to do so in Indiana within three days. She followed the all of the abortion laws of the state, the consent laws, the ultrasound law, um, the, there was parental consent. I, the, the child's mother uh, gave consent for the abortion, I, I believe. And so I, I think that the, the basis of the letter is a, a physician saying, you know, I have, 
I have, I have, I have, you know, performed, uh, uh, I, I have met the, my legal duties. Uh, I've made sure to be in compliance with the, with every aspect of the law. Well, Todd Rakita, the Republican Attorney General of Indiana, who was grandstanding on Fox, he said that she is a pro-abortion activist posing as a doctor. I mean, that's attacking her very professional qualifications, surely. I think that there's a a line of uh, describing physicians who provide abortions as abortionists. I mean, you even see that in Supreme Court judgments (laughs) of describing people who uh, provide abortion care as abortionists. And I think that is a description that is meant to um, suggest that people who are providing abortions with medical licenses are a different kind of uh, health care provider than other health care providers. And that's certainly not the case as a matter of their license. Um, so, you know, OBs, uh, for instance, who provide abortion care are qualified to provide obstetric services just as those who don't. So that, that I think, is a, um, is, has been a longstanding framing uh, by by folks who don't support abortion rights. And again, I'm speaking with Rachel Reboucher, who is a interim dean and a professor of law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law and a leading scholar in e- reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law. And she, she is an author of Governance, Feminism, and Introduction, and the editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law Opinions Rewritten, and co-author of an article at The Atlantic, The Harshest Abortion Restrictions Are Yet to Come. So, Rachel, let's turn to the political arena. Just uh, last week, the House passed two bills seeking to ensure access to abortion. Of course, not likely to go anywhere in the Senate. But Senate Democrats are also calling on Biden to declare a public health emergency on abortion. And so far, 80 House Democrats have urged Biden to take action along with now... 18 Senate Democrats, uh, led by Senators Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and Alex Padilla. So what's the path there in terms of a public health emergency on on abortion that presumably that could be done through an executive order? What could that achieve, do you think? So it it depends on, and and without trying to get too into the weeds, it depends on what um, the, the statute that is the basis for the public health emergency. Uh, lots of folks are calling for uh, the Biden Health and Human Services Agency to declare a public health emergency under something called the PrEP Act. And if if the if HHS declares a public health emergency under that act, it does give the it gives the administration uh, some powers that it wouldn't have just in the course of normal operations. So. Um, under that act, if, uh, if there's an epidemic or a pandemic here, an, an epidemic, it, it allows the administration to deploy countermeasures, and countermeasures are defined as, um, you know, could be drugs, for instance, like vaccines that are meant to mitigate or um, help ease the effects of uh, uh, epidemic. And uh, so lots of folks think that that you know, that the Biden administration through HHS uh, could declare that the health consequences of the abortion bans that we're seeing now constitute an epidemic and that medication abortion are countermeasures or drugs that can be used to fight that epidemic. Um, but it's not, a, it's, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some gaps here because this is a statute, for instance, that has been typically applied to, we saw it applied in COVID-19 pandemic, we saw it applied to Zika, um, and so there would need to be, uh, a court would need to agree if, if this action was challenged that this was the right application of the law. Well, it seems to me that there's been a, a long-standing Republican strategy to move abortion out of the healthcare arena just as they did with COVID, which they politicize and try to make it not a healthcare issue, but a political issue. So is there a counter narrative that the Democrats could develop here? Uh, Because we're talking about healthcare here, 
not sort of extreme political zealotry. Well, I, th- I mean, I, I, I think that that you know, this is the push of the the Biden administration through the HHS would defend these actions by defending the right of Health and Human Services to react to deep public health needs, um, and that we are in a situation where there's lots of confusion and, frankly, legal chaos. There are questions about access, um, and this is an intervention that would address, could address, um, this moment that we are in post-Dobbs. And so I think the the what people are calling for HHS to do is to make this declaration to shine a light on the gravity of the health consequences that uh, occur when unintended pregnancy uh, is high, uh, namely maternal morbidity and mortality, uh, more people dying, more people uh, being injured uh, as a result of uh, carrying pregnancies to term that they didn't plan, uh, travel, uh, the logistics of, of pregnancy itself. So, I, you know, I think that's probably the messaging that uh, that the Biden administration working through Health and Human Services would adopt. Well, your article at The Atlantic, The Harshest Abortion Restrictions Are Yet to Come, the first of, of three suggestions that you have here, or three identifying three of the harshest restrictions yet to come. The first one, of course, is about travel. And I've often thought that what we're heading into here is a kind of the specter of Christian, and I use that term loosely, Christian vigilantes at Greyhound bus stations in red states and other states that have these trigger laws, you know, basically checking the papers of young women as though, you know, harking back to the sort of Gestapo, show me your papers. Is that likely to happen? I, you know, I think there are impediments to that kind of travel control, namely the Constitution. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, I, I think we're going to see states try to um, extend their abortion policies past their state borders. Uh, there's already model legislation written by the National Right to Life uh, group. Um, Missouri's already you know, thought about but didn't pass a law that would seek to penalize providers in other states providing abortions to Missouri residents. Uh, but those laws will be hard to implement for a number of reasons, uh, logistical reasons, reasons of jurisdiction, but also because we do have here um, in, in the U.S. a uh, right to travel. Uh, well, we, we have had a right to travel under the 14th Amendment. We have the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Uh, we have a Citizenship Clause. We have Protection for Interstate Commerce. And I'm saying this, uh, I say that all, you know, to, to echo what Justice Kavanaugh said in his concurrence, that he believes that there's a right to travel that would preclude states from doing this. But we argue um, with my, my, my co-authors, David Cohen and Greer Donnelly, that it's an unsettled area of law and it hasn't really been tested. It could get tangled up in courts. Courts could come to different conclusions. And we don't, we, you know, we don't know what kind of law the Supreme Court, for instance, would strike down or uphold. So we, ex- I, you know, we expect to see these laws start to gain traction in some places even if they're enjoined or they're, you know, they've stopped them from being enforced by some courts, they may not be from others. So I'll give you an example. Texas SB8 was a pre-viability ban that offended Roe and Casey while those cases stood, and it was enforced because of a procedural, the way in which that law is, is enforced by private citizens. So there's already... Uh, conversation about using the same enforcement mechanism, which would shield uh, potential laws from from federal court review. Well, but th- that law that you just mentioned, uh, the vigilante law uh, in Texas, wouldn't that extend to the scenario that I mentioned, that they could basically, vigilantes could detain young women or even arrest them if they're getting on a grand bus to go to New Mexico for an abortion, if they don't have the right papers or permission from the parents or whatever, you know, or if they get tipped off by a relative 
or a neighbour. I mean, it's the most insidious law, and so far it's on the books, isn't it? So that's not actually how SB8 applies, but you're right that it's created enough confusion that it's chilled a lot of conduct. So SB8, as it is now, only applies to providers and people who aid and abet providers who have a Texas license. So it's not, you know, you couldn't sue an Illinois provider or someone who is assisting an Illinois provider uh, under the current law. But it's written it is written in a way that's confusing <laughs> and it's, and it's prompted folks to take precautions because they don't want to lose their medical licenses and they don't want to be um, subject to a $10,000 lawsuit. Um, so we've, and we've, we've seen that with the ripple effects of people leaving the state with the clinic shutting down with uh, the spike in, in folks ordering medication abortion online from Texas. Uh, those are consequences that have that that we've seen unfold after SBA took effect. So, my understanding is that at this point, something like is it ninety four percent of abortions in this country are medical abortions via a pill? No, it's around sixty percent. Sixty percent. Oh, so what happens in Texas if you get a pill through the mail and the, and the postman or somebody else? alerts the authorities? Well, at the moment, it's not um, patients that are targeted by laws. But Texas, um, like, you know, uh, many states are considering laws that explicitly penalize the mailing, distribution, receipt of abortion pills. And so um, I think that's a direction that states potentially will move in is to try to police or surveil pills more closely. And just in closing here, to go back to the 10-year-old girl from Ohio that that had to go for an abortion in Indiana, and she was given a medical abortion with a pill, was she not? That's right. Uh, it's a medication abortion. Is for uh, It's approved up through 10 weeks of pregnancy. And this all happened at a time when Fox News and Tucker Carlson and Representative Jim Jordan and others were saying it didn't happen. And, of course, the Murdoch Press, uh, including the Wall Street Journal, had an editorial saying the whole story was too good to confirm. And along with the Attorney General of Indiana that I mentioned uh, that slandered the uh, or libeled the um, doctor who prescribed the uh, abortion pill to this 10-year-old who'd been raped, and uh, they denied this until it became obvious that the guy was arrested. The most disgusting thing of all was that the Wall Street Journal had an editorial saying the story was too good to confirm. <laughs> a oh. rather Orwellian uh, statement in itself. So it's, it's, it, it's sort of bringing out the worst in this country, it feels. I don't know, maybe that's too partisan uh, interpretation, but um, is this battle going to be won, do you think, in terms of the blue states? Can they at least take care of refugees from red states? I think states are passing laws like Connecticut and New York that are seeking to protect their providers in state, that the people who come to their states, I think. So I think you're going to see pretty intense interstate differences. Um, and in the short term, there, I think we're going to expect to see a lot of confusion, misinformation, travel, the consequences of travel, um, and so I think that this is just this is just the tip of the iceberg of conflicts that that um, the different positions that states will take and right. how they'll seek to um, enforce those positions. And just in closing, the author of the Dobbs decisions, Justice Alito, in his opinion, said that Roe v. Wade had to, and Casey had to be struck down because they were dividing and polarizing the country. I mean, what planet is that guy on? Because it's the opposite is happening. States are turning against states. The divisions are even greater. I mean, it's just amazing. It's, it's, there's a lot of conflict. Um, there's not been an end to litigation. Um, so the, if, if, if folks were predicting that overturning ruling Casey would predict uh, would result in more workable abortion law, uh, I don't think we're seeing that. <laughs> 
Well, Rachel Rebuchet, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Rachel Rebuchet, who's the Interim Dean and a Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. She's a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory, and family law, and author of Governance, Feminism, and Introduction, the editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law, Opinions Rewritten, and co-author of an article at The Atlantic, The Harshest Abortion Restrictions Are Yet to Come. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the enormous sums of money groups aligned with APAC, the Israel lobby, are pouring into Democratic primary races in Maryland and Michigan. If a sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate. Every sperm is Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dov Waxman, who is a professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA's YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, including Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dove Waxman. Thank you for having me on the program. Well, thanks for joining us, Dove, and... An extraordinary amount of money is being spent in Democratic primary races in uh, Michigan and in Maryland, in particular, where issues over Israel are not even on the radar with any of the candidates, uh, given all of the problems we have with inflation, etc. So what's going on here in terms of, I mean, I guess to put it in a nutshell, the Democratic Party center of political gravity is moving to the left and uh, Israel's s- uh, political center of gravity has moved to the right. Is that the inherent problem here? Well, yes, I think the the uh, the problem, if you want to put it like that, in the eyes of some is, is this shift that has been taking place in the Democratic Party in terms of its attitudes toward Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, the rise of more uh, openly outspoken uh, Democrats who are more critical of Israel, willing to challenge particularly uh, the unconditional provision of U.S. military aid to Israel. And I think this has really alarmed uh, many more traditional pro-Israel donors and groups who who are worried that the Democratic Party is becoming more critical of Israel. This is, of course, in 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 a larger context of a kind of battle between moderates and progressives for the soul of the Democratic Party. And the issue of Israel is is one of the um, lightning issues, if you like, in this larger battle that's still going on. But first of all, it seems that the Israel lobby has a lot of influence. It's always had a lot of influence over the Democratic Party. And under Shamir, a project developed to lure the Republicans into supporting Israel via, via what is loosely called Christian Zionism. So can you make the case that already the Republican Party is completely on board in terms of sort of unconditional support for Israel? I think that's largely true. Certainly uh, Republican voters are, are strongly pro-Israel over the last uh, two decades, they've become increasingly supportive of Israel. And I think certainly, you know, the bulk of uh, the Republican Party in Congress are strongly pro-Israel. There are, of course, you know, those uh, libertarians uh, within the Republican Party who oppose uh, foreign aid in general, including the provision of aid to Israel. So there are a few uh, more more outliers within the among Republicans, but for the most part, the Republican Party has become kind of solidly pro-Israel, not just pro-Israel, but kind of uh, really um, adopting uh, hawkish right-wing positions on Israel. We shouldn't just associate the the label pro-Israel with with unconditionally backing what right-wing Israeli governments are doing. That's been the position of the Republican Party. And so really, 
um, it's the, the for many pro-Israel groups and the pro-Israel lobby in general, the Democratic Party is the focus because that's really where the shift in attitudes is taking place. So let's focus on the race in um, Maryland between former Congresswoman Donna Edwards and Glenn Ivey, a former prosecutor and cabinet Hill aide, both of whom seem to have reasonably pro-Israel stances, although apparently Donna Edwards has fallen afoul of the APEC-funded Super PAC United Democracy Project, and they've spent, I guess, up to $28 billion in Super PAC spending, uh, along with millions in additional dollars in bundled donations directly to campaigns. So in terms of that race, I've noticed Donna Edwards on MSNBC quite a lot, and I've never thought she was particularly convincing in any way uh, what she said. So how would you describe her, Dov? Is she a leftist or a centrist? Or, or, or Yeah, I certainly don't think she could be, uh, you know, described as a member of the so-called squad or even as a, as a really uh, a strong progressive uh, Democrat. I mean, her positions are really quite mainstream, uh, including, I, I would say, her positions on, on Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, it's not that she's, um, quote-unquote, anti-Israel. Um, I mean, she, for example, uh, opposes the uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against Israel, which uh, some progressives do support. She supports a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which, again, some progressives oppose. So uh, on, on, when it comes to Israel, she's actually fairly uh, mainstream. Um, where she seems to have incurred the ire of uh, the kind of pro-Israel right in groups like AIPAC I think isn't because she opposes Israel or she's uh, so much as she's critical um, and uh, willing to and not necessarily willing to um, allow for the continued provision of US military aid to Israel without any kinds of conditions or restrictions. Uh, so it's not a question of her being anti-Israel per se, but really simply willing to uh, question or condition or restrict US aid to Israel. And I think that's the red line that she's crossed in the eyes of uh, some on the pro-Israel right. And again, I'm speaking with Dove Waxman, Professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of a number of books, including Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israel-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. So in terms of of the Jewish vote in this country, it's what, about roughly 3% of the American population? Uh, yeah, about 2.5%. Right. But according to polls in the past, even Jewish voters in this country have found that support for Israel is rarely a top voting issue. So what explains this disconnect between APAC and American Jewish voters? Well, yeah, uh, Israel is not a major issue for most American Jews. There isn't really a Jewish vote, so to speak. Um, most Jewish Americans vote, as other Americans, on primarily domestic issues and issues like healthcare and the ed education and the economy and etc. Um, so unlike Jewish Americans in general, pro-Israel groups, which aren't only um, backed or supported by or even run by uh, Jewish Americans. I mean, they're not the same. We shouldn't think of it as a kind of Jewish lobby. This is a these are pro-Israel groups. Um, those groups do have a single minded focus on Israel. So they are, um, you know, single issue donors, if you like, in a way that Jewish Americans are not single issue voters. There is a small um, subsection of the uh, American Jewish community who tend to be much more religiously orthodox for whom Israel is an important uh, factor in their voting. But they typically vote, and they amount for about 10% of the American Jewish community, they increasingly vote for the Republican Party. So at least for Jews who vote for the Democratic Party, Israel is not nearly at the top of their concerns. And that's very different from these pro-Israel groups that are intervening in these races, which are doing so precisely because Israel is their primary concern. But what's striking in, in these interventions and in the campaign ads that they're funding is that they don't actually 
focus on Israel. They're not attacking these candidates, uh, these progressive candidates or, or mainstream candidates for their positions on Israel. Um, and that's one of the things that's controversial about it. It's not just the intervention of these pro-Israel groups and the, the massive amounts of money that they're pouring into these democratic primaries, but that they're not doing so some charge in a kind of transparent manner because the, um, the, the, the attacks that they're running against these candidates rarely actually focus on these candidates' positions on Israel. So is this all something of an overreaction to the squad? Because Patrick Dorton, the spokesman for the APAC-aligned United Democracy Project that's spending you know, at least $6 million against Donna Edwards, um, he said, we're going to do our best to make sure no new anti-Israel member of the squad gets elected. Now, I don't think Donna Edwards, by any stretch of imagination, is a member of the squad. So is this an overreaction? Well, I think it goes well beyond uh, just trying to kind of uh, prevent members of the so-called squad from, from entering office. Um, this, you know, the, it, it, it may be more acceptable to say, you know, this pro-Israel money is just being spent against so-called anti-Israel candidates, members of the squad, or those who are most explicit supporters of Palestinian rights. But in fact, this money is also being spent against uh, uh, individuals who are openly pro-Israel, um, who identify as being pro-Israel, who support Israel in, in many ways, but they're not unconditional in their support for Israel. They're not uncritical in their support for Israel. So I think while groups like APAC may present this and frame this as a way of defeating the squad or presenting the squad from taking over the Democratic Party. I think that doesn't really reflect what's really happening within the Democratic Party. The squad is a small uh, element of that, but much more significant is this shift among more moderate and mainstream Democrats who have become increasingly critical of Israel as well. Not that they're now supporting, you know, calling for the, the boycott of Israel or the cancellation of US military aid to Israel, but there's talking about having greater uh, restrictions or conditions put on what Israel can do with the US aid. So this is really, I think, not an issue just about the kind of far left of the Democratic Party. It's really a battle for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. So, Dov, let's talk a little about the Republican Party, or at least the support from these APEC uh, formed new groups. They've endorsed 109 of the 147 Republicans who voted to overturn the elections, and that includes Jim Jordan. Are they supporting Liz Cheney, who's always been very hawkish on Israel? Yes, they, they uh, belatedly, they've also come out to support Liz Cheney. I mean, the, the um, support for these hundred uh, Republicans who opposed the certification of 2020 election, you know, that's certainly controversial. Um, you know, it's it's opened up APAC to criticism that it's basically uh, violating its own declared values. I mean, it causes this super PAC is called the United Democracy Project that APAC has set up. And yet it is endorsing candidates who in many ways have contributed to a existential threat to American democracy. So there's definitely a lot of controversy surrounding that, but I think APAC's strategy is clear. I mean, they cannot uh, just spend money on one side of the aisle, or the vast majority, the, uh, more than 90% of the money that they've raised is being spent in these democratic primaries. Uh, it's still important for APAC to endorse Republicans because their critical concern, their fundamental goal is to ensure the continuation of bipartisan American support for Israel, and in particular, bipartisan, unconditional American support for Israel. And so for APAC, they really have to um, endorse Republicans as well in order to remain a bipartisan organization. So let's talk about the Michigan race that has pitted two Democrats against each other because of redistricting. That's Representative Haley Stevens and Andy Levin in Michigan's 11th congressional district. And already the United Democracy Project has spent $2.4 in supporting Stevens against Levin. Uh, and then J Street Action Fund, which is a pro-Israel progressive organization, they have spent over 700000 in support of Levin. But... Levin himself has incredibly 
strong credentials, I guess, in a way. Uh, he comes from an influential Jewish family in Michigan. His father was former Representative Sandy Levin. His uncle was the late Senator Carl Levin. And he's fairly uh, moderate, isn't he? I mean, he's he's against uh, BDS, supports U.S. funding for the Iron Dome technology, etc. So what what's the problem that APAC has with um, with Levin? Well, yeah, this really, you know, the funding uh, to uh, for Levin's opponent in this race really, I think, um, demonstrates the lie that this is somehow all about trying to defeat or or um, anti-Israel candidates. Because Levin, whatever you think of him, cannot really be um, perceived, portrayed as an anti-Israel candidate. Um, his positions are, in fact, in many ways, uh, reflective of the preferences of the views of many, if not most, at least a plurality, if not majority, of Jewish Americans. So it's striking that in this race, you know, Levin, who is himself Jewish, who supports Israel, who who um, is not an anti-Israel, uh, but he's become a target. And I think um, his what's made him a target, you know, is first and foremost the fact that he is, has introduced a bill that would um, to support the two-state solution, but that would place restrictions on how Israel can use U.S. military aid. Um, particularly, uh, the idea is to uh, prevent U.S. aid to Israel from being used to deepen or reinforce Israel's control or occupation of the West Bank. This is a red line for groups like APAC, who, who strongly, stridently uh, want to oppose any kind of conditioning or restrictions on U.S. Aid to Israel. Um, so I think that's really his uh, chief um, crime, if you like. He's also been um, outspoken in his defense of um, his colleague Rashida Tlaib um, and other members of the squad. He, I don't think we, he could be placed as a member of the squad, but he has come out strongly in rejecting the accusations of anti-Semitism against them. And I think that has also earned him the ire of some uh, within the pro-Israel community. Well, apparently the Stevens campaign is really upset with a J Street ad that made the point that the supporters of, of Stevens have endorsed over 100 Republican members of Congress who essentially were in favor of the insurrection. Uh, and also that APAC's super PAC had received funds from these big Republican mega donors, Bernie Marcus and Paul Singer. So that has obviously uh, touched a nerve. Is that being effective? I mean, again, this all feels like a sort of storm in a teacup, Dub, because nobody in these campaigns are ever talking about Israel. As you point out, the campaign hits are all about domestic issues. So it's all rather puzzling, frankly. Right. But I think if we if we see these... Um these kind of uh, contests, these battles, ultimately there are much bigger stakes. This is not just about the Democratic position, the Democratic Party's positions on Israel or US military aid to Israel. Um, this is also much broader than that in terms of uh, the future of the Democratic Party and particularly uh, the willing, the the power and influence of progressive Democrats within within the party. So I think, you know, it's not just um, kind of right-wing pro-Israel groups or centre-right pro-Israel groups that are supporting some of these uh, candidates against progressives, but also, you know, corporate super PACs as well. They're on, they're, they're on the same side um, because they're, in both cases, I think they, there's a concern that the Democratic Party is, is very slowly, um, imperceptibly, some might say, but very slowly moving left as its base has shifted left. So there's a concern. We've seen poll after poll that shows that the, the base of the Democratic Party, particularly younger uh, people and people of color, more to the left. Um, and that is gradually filtering into the into the Democratic Party and shifting its positions. So I think in many ways, these smaller, seemingly, you know, storms in the teacup are, are, have to be understood in terms of this wider struggle for the future of the party. Is it going to move to the left or is it going to stay solidly in the centre or um, even, as some might say, on the centre-right some, on some issues? Well, just in closing then, uh, Dove Waxman, um, what do you think will be the results here? I know we're, we're, neither of us are in the betting business, but so far... 
these APAC affiliated super PACs have been successful in getting Representative Chantel Brown made the candidate in Ohio and Henry Queller in Texas, who were considered fairly, one of, I think, the most conservative of all the Democratic uh, congressmen. They've had successes there, but they had didn't do well in Pennsylvania. They spent three million dollars to elect Steve Irwin, and he fell short of Representative Summer Lee, who the APEC group affiliated group opposed. So, what do you think is going to happen uh, with Donna Edwards, and and in particular uh, Andy Levin? Well, I mean, you know, um, it's hard. It's always difficult to predict, in part because in these races, you know, it's it all politics is local. Um, and so, you know, the dynamics will differ from one place to the next. But on the, I think the the bigger picture is clear that in most of the cases so far, in in the vast majority of the case times where uh, APAC super PAC um, has and the Democratic uh, majority for Israel has stepped in and 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 provided large sums of money, they have in almost all, not in every case, as you noted, uh, but in in almost all cases prevailed. So I think. You know, if I was to be a betting person, I would probably predict that that they would succeed again, because, you know, even where you have J Street, for example, putting some money in uh, to the race in uh, Maryland to support Edwards um, or to support Levin in Michigan, you know, it's a it's a mismatch. The, there's a much, much less money going on the progressive side to support these candidates than the money going to defeat them. So I think, you know, uh, time and again, we've seen that, you know, campaign funding money often has a outsized role in, in determining the outcome of elections, particularly in these in primaries. Um, and so my prediction, dare I say, give one, is, is that probably we'll see more uh, victories for uh, APAC-aligned candidates because, you know, the vast majority of the financial firepower is on their side. Well, Dov Waxman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Pleasure to be on the show. And again, I've been speaking with Dov Waxman, who's professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, Bar-Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University. And he's the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, including Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israel-Palestinian Conflict conflict, what everyone needs to know. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice Singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here of the free When time was back in America Oh